tell you about two guys, and we'll build the story up, and then we'll kind of land it and see how, we, how maybe all of us, the gospel can have an effect on all of us um, towards trusting that God wants to save all kinds of people. There's no one that God doesn't want to save. The first guy that we meet in the story, if you go read all of Acts 10, uh, the first guy you meet is Peter. Um, I thought we could maybe have two guys representative of a Jew. I thought Anaya could be our representative of an Italian uh, because he is Italian, but he's not here this morning. So we're, gonna, we're not going to have a Jewish and Italian representative. You're just going to imagine it with me. And to our left, we have Peter. He's a devout Jew. This means that he doesn't eat BLTs ever, even on Saturdays. He doesn't have a cheat day. He's never had a pork chop. He's actually never even fellowshiped with someone outside of the Jewish community in his life. He is a devout Jew. He loves God. Um, he's he's a well kind of, he lives out his religion, his Jewish religion, um, with full steam. And we see that a number of times. And um, so that's Peter. And we're going to follow his journey a little bit. Um, during Peter's life, Jerusalem, where, where he lived and grew up, that, that whole area was under Roman rule. Uh, and this isn't something that the Jewish people uh, liked, but the Jews and the Romans learned to tolerate each other because that's, you know, how best to get on with things. So while the Jews didn't want to be under anyone's rule and they wanted God to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, they kind of learn to put up with each other. You leave us alone, we leave you alone, and then we can practice our religion and you can practice your government and everyone's okay with one another. Some people kind of uh, live between the lines and you see people, Jesus comes to them as well, like Matthew the tax collector, a Jewish guy who works for the Romans. He's, he's living on both sides of that line and people, the Jews don't like it. The Romans love it. They've got one of the Jews' own working for them. Uh, the Jews don't like it. You've crossed the line. You're supposed to stay inside of these boundaries um, and amongst us. But we see Peter, he's well within the boundaries, and this is where he's at. The Romans were super clever, allowing the, the Israelites to practice their religion and even helping with their temples and that and, and uh, letting them get on with their culture. The, they really weren't a threat in terms of war. So it was easy for the Romans to do this. And what, would, uh, what the Romans would do is, if they w- the way that they, the Romans fought is that they had uh, bands of soldiers called um, centuries which were, like you can imagine, about 100 soldiers that would fight together. They would live together. They, they knew each other inside and out. So as they went to war, this band, you know, like you kind of uh, first in, last out, it was like these guys would go in together and they wouldn't come out except together. Um, and so when there were times of peace, these same centuries were moved into different locations where Roman, the Rome, uh, Roman government uh, had government, and, and these centuries were put in place to keep law and order. And so in this case, there's a century uh, in different uh, Judea regions, or regions of Judea, and um, there's different centuries, and there's one in the city of Caesarea. And this is a very, very large city. It's uh, a city on the port of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so there's lots of trade, there's lots of diversity, all sorts of people coming in, uh, an economic hub. And so this, the century that the Roman government puts there is kind of a, a well-known one, a well-established one. You kind of got to put a good force there in case things go bad. You need to, you know, law and order needs to come back very quickly. Um, a century would always have a leader, and the leader of the century was called a centurion. The centurion was a mid-level position. Uh, in the Roman army. So, you know, it's not like an uber promotion up there. It's a mid-level position. But normally, uh, a century was well-educated, which already kind of put you in a a slightly more elite class. 
um, a century only got into his position by already showing in battle that he was brave and skilled at war. And so when he has this position, all the men underneath him would look to the century as kind of their role model. And I, those of you who, who are in business, uh, maybe you've got someone, you have these ambitions in business, and maybe you have someone uh, who's been very successful in the type of business that you want to do, and they're your boss. And it's kind of like you can't wait to go to work and learn everything you can from him or her because they've already been there and done that, right? You, you get that kind of personality or whatever it is that you, um, you do. Uh, and so uh, the centurion was just like men of men. Uh, to the, and, and this was like kind of not, not their idol, but close to a hero, but certainly a role model, mentor, coach. Uh, and so what we have here is a centurion named Cornelius. And Cornelius is the centurion over the century of men who's in the city called Caesarea. And we find something out, out about Cornelius. Cornelius is a believer, but he's Italian, he's Roman, he's in Caesarea, he's, over, uh, he's keeping law and order over the Jews as well, um, but he's a believer in the Jewish God. Except that, um, even though he's a believer, he probably has never eaten uh, with a Jewish community or been invited into Jewish fellowship, and certainly... No Jewish community or leader has come out to fellowship with him. So he believes in this God of the Jews. Uh, he's a sincere follower. He obeys God. He, uh, he gives to the poor. We, we read about him. So he's kind of living out his, his, his faith. But he probably also, he probably does eat BLTs on weekends and doesn't mind a pork chop every now and then or a pork rib uh, because he's not a Jew. Um, this is interesting to me because we have Cornelius kind of walking with God and following God before he's received the gospel, before he's received the Holy Spirit, before he's received baptism. So this is kind of like a pre-gospel believer, but he certainly has a sincere faith. It's kind of like, I think, the way to break it down maybe is to go, you know, like children ask, <laughs> we, I don't know, if you grew up in a Christian home, maybe you thought this, I did I, myself, um, if I die, am I going to go to heaven? That's not really a relational question. That's a staying out of hell question, right? Not, if I die, am I going to go see God, my, my, my father? It's, if I die, am I going to heaven? If, if Cornelius dies, is he going to go to heaven? In, if he dies at the beginning of Acts 10, is he going to go to heaven? It, I think the answer is yes. But there's a lot more that God has for him that he's going to find out because he hasn't yet heard the gospel. Um, and this is exciting. So here's the three things we're going to look at. God is lovingly at work. The gospel breaks every human division of people, and we are called to join in. So number one, God is lovingly at work. So one day at about three o'clock, Cornelius was visited by an angel. He's probably, he's probably practicing some prayer or something. And he's visited by an angel uh, who God has sent him. And the angel comes to Cornelius, and he uh, says to Cornelius... God has received your prayers. What, what a wonderful comfort. If you've been on the outside of a religion, yet you believe in their God, yet because of what they believe, they can never welcome you in. And you've been on the outside believing and living and praying and giving to the poor and living out your faith. What a comfort when an angel sent from God comes to you and says, hey, God has watched you. God has heard you. He receives you. Whoa. This is amazing. And he says, God has received your prayers. 
And then he instructs Cornelius and says, uh, Cornelius, I want you to go and send some men to go and fetch a man named Peter, and you will find this man at a certain man's house named Simon, and this is the location of the house. Now, if, if God came and did this to someone today, he would just kind of pin their uh, location on a map and text it through to Cornelius, and then he could just Google Maps it and go, go for it. But because we don't ha- didn't have that technology, an angel has to come and tell him where, whose house it is, where the house is, and where he can go and find him. And so he sends these three, pe- these three men um, to go to uh, find Peter, who's in Joppa, and that's about 30 kilometers away from where uh, Cornelius is. So this is kind of like a two-day journey, unless you're like Caleb, who ran like 120 k's in 24 hours on beach sand. If only Cornelius had three guys like Caleb. Uh, although I think the story goes that Caleb started to see little deer running along with him. He was, uh, so who knows? Anyway. <laughs> Cornelius has three ordinary people that he sends and it takes about a day or two to get to Peter. While they're walking, Peter goes to prayers on one of the, the next day or the day after. Peter goes to his prayer uh, at 12 o'clock and he's doing his regular prayers. He's asked someone to make some food for him. And he goes into some sort of a trance. Don't you love that the Bible uses this kind of word that can be translated trance? Because as soon as we hear trance nowadays, we're like, no, that sounds bad and weird. Um, And most times it probably is bad and weird. But I I kind of love that we have this word stuck in our Bibles and we can't throw it away. Peter falls into this unexplainable kind of trance thing that's not called necessarily just a dream. He has a dream in his trance. Anyway, it happens. And God starts talking to him. And this, bl- this, this picnic blanket comes down from heaven in a picture. And on it are all these uh, animals and, and foods that Peter can't eat. But they're alive. And God says to Peter, uh, kill and eat. I mean, it would have been one thing to have the BLT right there. And God say, like, eat it. And Peter smells and goes, oh, I'm so tempted to. But, you know, there's just this, on this blanket, there's pigs and all sorts of things. And God says, kill it and eat it. Now, if you're like me, I, I would have gone, gross, no thanks. But that's just like a gross thing. Peter wasn't grossed out because of that. Peter goes, no, Lord, I have never touched anything common or unclean. What Peter's saying is, God, I wouldn't dare do that because within our religion, we have laws about food and there's certain ways to prepare your food and certain things that you can eat. And even when you have your food, you have to dedicate that to the Lord who makes it uh, uncommon by making it holy and pure and clean. And therefore, when we eat it, it's food that God has blessed for our bellies. It's a certain kind of food blessed in a certain kind of way. That's all I've eaten my whole life. And I will not touch anything that is outside of those boundaries. And God says to him a second time, kill and eat. And God rebukes him and says, you can go read it, don't call anything that I have made uh, clean, common and unclean. What a rebuke. uh, God's saying, all these things in front of your, your eyes, which you've seen a certain way your whole life, if I have made them clean, don't you dare call them common and unclean. In other words, God is breaking some paradigms and saying, I, I get that there's ways that, you, you, you have, that things have been and that you've understood things and you've been taught to see things, but if God changes them, are you going to say, no, they can't be changed? In other words, are you going to let your religious worldview get in the way of God who gave you that religion? <laughs> Change it. Yeah. How flexible are you, Peter when God Almighty is the one at work. And so he hears us three times, and he comes out, and he whips out his journal, 
Hopefully it's like a moleskin or something cool. And he starts reflecting and thinking, what is God trying to show me? He, he doesn't think God is trying to get him to run after a wild boar and kill it and eat it. He's not like asterisk, asterisk and obliquing this thing. He really thinks God has a message for him, but he doesn't know what it is. But what he can record is, there's something about God making things clean that I think are unclean. And I need to remember this. That's, what he ta- that's his takeaway, right? So Peter's beginning to understand uh, the gospel is, is unfolding. Peter's life is beginning to get turned upside down. The other thing to bear in mind is where, where this is all happening. God is, just follow what God's doing in Peter's life. Peter, this kind of Jew, Jew of Jews, uh, this guy who opens up his mouth and always sticks his foot in it, um, the zealous for the gospel, the first guy to preach the gospel, 3,000 uh, Jewish people get saved. Um, he's now at Simon's house. What do we know about Simon? Do any of you want to have a guess? I'll tell you, I didn't hear what you said, but I'll tell you what, 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 what you should know. In, in the, he's a tanner. Simon's a tanner. He's at Simon the tanner's house. So let me tell you about Simon the tanner. Simon the tanner is a Jew who is kind of an outcast within his Jewish community. It's not that they don't think he's a believer. It's not that they don't think that Simon's a Jew. It's that Simon, being a tanner, has to work with dead animals. And by working with dead animals, it makes him ceremonially unclean, and so no Jew can touch him. So the easiest thing to do is to say, Simon, because we love you and you love us, stay out of the community. Do your job. We accept that. You know, we need tanners. We need the leather. That, that's part of our society. But you're the one. You know, take the hit for all of us. You're the one. You're out. <laughs> yeah. So Exactly. Thanks, bro. So Peter has gone out. He's begun. This is his first step out of the normal Jewish community. He's staying with Simon the Tanner. He's on the edges of society. The gospel's starting to reshape Peter's heart. His mind. He's starting to think maybe, you know, Jesus would be okay with staying with Simon. I've seen Jesus do this kind of thing before. Remember when he was speaking to the woman who had five uh, husbands before? Remember when we found him, him speaking to her? No Jew would have ever speak, spoken to her. Remember when Jesus went into the tax collector's house? Remember when Jesus called the tax collector to follow him? Remember when Jesus, he's like, oh, what Jesus, I didn't get it. But the Holy Spirit started to help me to get it and softening my heart and, and opening me up to love people that I wouldn't have loved before. And I'm okay with staying at Simon the Tanner's house. The other thing is Simon the Tanner's house we find is on the, on the edge of the sea. And maybe that's for practical reasons, for trade, and it's easier to get the leathers in and out. Maybe. But in the Jewish thought and in the Old Testament, the sea was always representative of chaos. So, you know, and what causes chaos is sin. And so Simon the Tanner, the picture here is that he's on the outskirts of, of the Jewish community. He's on the edges of society. He's really on the border where all the chaos dwells. And the gospel goes straight there. Peter, the bearer of the gospel, goes to where the chaos is, where the, marg- uh, where the marginalized live. And this vision of don't call what I call clean, unclean, comes to him on the margins of society. Something, God's doing something. So then God says, when he comes out of this and he's busy journaling, God says, uh, right now there's these three guys who are arriving downstairs. I want you to go run downstairs, welcome them, and then I want you to go wherever they're going to lead you. Oh, man. It says, uh, just to give Peter credit, he got up and, and ran. He was excited. 
The, the, the way it talks about it, it sounds like Peter's stoked. I think partly because he doesn't understand what God's trying to teach him, and he knows that this is the next step. It's going to reveal the mystery. What's God saying? So he runs down, he opens the door, and there's these three guys, and he finds out they've walked 30 kilometers, and he invites them in. Now, we don't really know if they're part of this, the century, if they're, one of, if they're three of the, the uh, Roman soldiers that, who were Italian. We don't know this, but it's likely that that's who was under uh, um, Cornelius's leadership. It could be someone else, but whoever it is, Peter goes, come in and, and stay here the night, and then we'll leave tomorrow. So there's a big shift here. He's welcoming, potentially, they're welcoming into the home for fellowship and food people who they ordinarily wouldn't have. The gospel's starting to change some boundaries. Now, you could still say it's on Jewish grounds. You know, at Simon's house, he's a Jew, Peter's a Jew, there's no pork involved in the meal etc., etc. Sure, but something is happening. Something's changing. God's busy doing some work. They get up in the morning and they head over to Cornelius' house. It takes them a day or two. Peter arrives at Cornelius' house. Cornelius, we find, has invited a whole bunch of uh, family and friends over to hear Peter. Peter doesn't know that he's about to come and deliver a sermon, uh, but Cornelius has got all his family and friends, and he doesn't know what Peter's going to say, but God's busy at work doing something. So Peter arrives at Cornelius' house. Now, the other thing that we learn about when God's at work is that people are clumsy, and we mess it up the whole time. If, if you've ever got in the way of something God's doing, it's okay. You're just a small obstacle. You'll get through that. It's all right. Don't, don't like bear the shame and guilt of it for the rest of your life. Just know that if you're walking with the Holy Spirit and God uses your life, you're going to go too far sometimes, you're going to go not far enough sometimes, you're going to not do the right thing sometimes. It's okay. Here's an example of it. Peter arrives to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is so overwhelmed by Peter coming. This is Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, the guy who preached the gospel for the first time. He's at my house. He's come by the sending of an angel of the Lord. This is some sort of divine intervention. And it says Cornelius fell to his face and worshipped Peter. He messed it up. Right there. I don't know what to do. Oh, Peter, you're amazing. Now, I just want to say as Christians, we do this all the time. You know, we have a King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus, the Holy One, Majestic One, the One we praise is no one like you, the name above all names, at, the name, at, your, at your name, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord, you're great, and then, you know, we, we see someone on the street that, like in our mind, is a celebrity or something, like, <gasps> did you see so-and-so? When did you, when's the last time you felt that in worshipping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? <gasps> We were in the presence of the Lord. I'd rather be in the presence of Hugh Jackman. Oh my goodness. Do, do, you, do you see what I'm, I'm trying to say? Is like, don't, don't look down on Cornelius because he didn't know what to do. Peter was just so great in his eyes that he melted. The same way I would melt if, in front of certain people. And I shouldn't, but God's still working on my heart. Yeah. And Peter says, and I mean, this is a moment, Peter this is a moment where the gospel begins to break into Peter's heart. And sometimes only as you walk with the Holy Spirit, you begin to understand things about the gospel. You can't understand the gospel studying it in your study at home. It's not how it works. You can get a little bit of it into your head, 
But in order for, to get it into your heart, you've got to get out there with people and let God do stuff to you. And as you, you're walking through, maybe you are super ungracious to someone. And as you walk away from them, your heart breaks and you realize, God, I need you to work in my heart. I have so little grace. I have so little patience. You are so gracious and patient and loving to me. And there's nothing in my tank. Won't you please work upon my heart? Or maybe, like this, Peter goes there and here's a guy who's fallen to his knees. Peter, it's the first time, it's the first time in Peter's life that he's on the brink of going into a non-Jew's home. This is, a, this is a new thing for him. If you've ever gone into, you know, in, in Japan, I recently visited two churches. It was so nerve-wracking going to two churches that believe exactly the same thing I believe. Brothers and sisters, you're going to spend eternity together. But it was still like, oh, I'm the new guy. Will I, know, will I be able to speak to anyone? Oh, my goodness. Are they going to like do a meet and greet for like three minutes? Oh, no. Oh, that's terrible. They did a meet and greet there, but it was like 20 seconds. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that their meet and greet's shorter than ours. <laughs> this is, you know, Peter's on the brink of something brand new. This is bigger than just another Jewish synagogue. This is someone, a kind of home he's never entered. The guy falls to his knees and something of the gospel blossoms for the first time. Peter sees something and he goes, no. Though you're an Italian, uh, though you're, you're an outsider of the Jewish community, you're not circumcised, I, I get No, stand up. I am just a man. The gospel helps Peter be humble, and Peter realizes, I'm just a man like you. That's a massive gospel statement. Don't let that go past you in Acts 10. When Peter says it, doesn't say don't, he doesn't say stand up, you shall only bow to the Lord Almighty. It's not a revelation of Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. It's a revelation of himself and the man. He goes, stand up, I'm just a man. I realize that in Jesus Christ, you and I are equal. And I've just realized that. Stand up, this is embarrassing. And it says, and so they chatted. Eyeball to eyeball, face to face, equal under Jesus Christ. They had a conversation. That's a massive gospel change for a Jew and a Gentile, and the first time we see it in the Bible, in this way. So then Cornelius takes him into the house, and um, he uh, takes him and shows, you know, there's a whole bunch of people there, um, and, you know, Peter's a bit surprised. There's a whole congregation, there's a, you know, church service, come Peter preach. Peter walks in. And he says to them, these words, his speech, I've never ever in my life been in a room like this with people like you. I used to consider you unclean and inferior, but God has shown me not to think of anyone like that anymore. So here I am, not really knowing what I'm doing, but knowing God is up to something. That's his speech. He realizes you're the dream. You're the pigs and animals that God has made clean. You are... Uh, you are, you are no longer to be viewed in that way. God has changed me. Not, not them. God has changed me. Um, I've never been in a room like this. I get it. But he's humble enough to also go, um, I know that God has brought us together, but I don't know why. Am I learning from you? Are you learning from me? What, what, what are we doing here? Isn't, there, isn't that the gospel again? Uh, not who's, who's the most famous, not who's the most gifted, not who's the most, we learn together. God's brought us together. What are we learning from each other? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the ones that edify the church, that build up the church. We help one another. We uh, edify one another. We point each other to Jesus Christ. Not who's the hero in the church. 
Peter goes, I don't, I, here we are, God's brought us together. Who, who's doing something? I don't know what we're doing. And they say, no, God told us that you would have a message for us, so you've got to tell us what God commanded you. And, and so Peter realizes, okay, so I'm the spokesman of this thing. Well, I can only tell you what God told us, Jesus told us. And I'm getting that now it's not just for the Jews, but it's for everyone. And he realizes that the same message Jesus delivered to them to take to all the world wasn't just to take to all the world wherever you find Jewish people, was to take to all the world for everyone, wherever you find people. And he gives him the, a, a, a gospel formula. He says, firstly, he talks to the gospel himself. The, the gospel first lands on him. Listen to what he says. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The gospel first comes home to Peter's heart. And he's standing in front of them and confessing that he has needed to receive the gospel in a new way. He's been preaching it, but now as he stands there, something new in the gospel has been revealed to him. And it's landing on his heart. And then he gives to them the gospel that he's already understood and been proclaiming. And he says, you know, this is it. Uh, John the Baptist came and he helped everyone see that we're sinners and in need of a savior. So he prepared the way. And then Jesus took over from John and he pushed back the darkness. And Jesus uh, came and he showed that he was here to save, rescue the oppressed. And then Jesus went and died uh, in, as sin's punishment. The sinner's punishment, he went and died in our place. But he was raised to life over sin and death, so that sin and death could have no more say in those who believe in Him, and that He could have a name above every name and give people life. And then He sent the apostles to go and tell the whole world that Jesus has been raised and that uh, He is now the judge over all things, so that whoever comes to Him through faith can receive forgiveness of their sins and be made righteous. And He delivers to them the gospel. And it's the first time that a crowd of Gentiles hears the gospel, and it's right inside one of their houses. And then in that moment, God endorses it by sending the Holy Spirit, and a Gentile Pentecost happens. The Gentile Acts 2 happens. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon them, and the same things that happened with the uh, Jewish disciples happen here, so that Peter and his friends, because he also took some of his own with him, uh, notice this, and their conclusion is, Oh my goodness! The same gospel we received, the same Holy Spirit we received, the same signs that we received, God is endorsing that all people who come to faith in Jesus Christ belong to Him in the same way. It wasn't circumcision, it wasn't the not eating of pork, it wasn't going to synagogue, it was faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter says to them, you know, if all of this has happened, how can we withhold baptism from them? So this is the gospel breaking down every human division. And in this room, you know, there's Jew, Gentile, male, female, bacon eaters, kosher diets, educated, uneducated, wealthy, poor, dark-skinned, light-skinned, English-speaking, Italian, every language under heaven, older people, younger people, whoever you are, all united through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, well, how can we not give them, if God has already sealed them, how can we not give them the seal that proclaims their, their commitment to God and God's commitment to them, the baptism, let's and get some water, let's baptize them. And right then and there, they baptize them. And baptism forms a symbol of saying, hey, these guys have put their faith in Jesus, and God has put them into His community of people. 
They're one of us. They're ours. We're theirs. We're His. And the barriers are broken, and there's a united body, the body of Jesus Christ, and that's kind of the symbol of it. There was some martyrs early on in Christian history um, uh, where they wouldn't, the persecutors wouldn't uh, kill the Christians that hadn't been baptized because there was no public sign that they had a faith in God and that the community of Christians believed them enough to welcome them in. So while baptism doesn't save anyone, it does say, hey, we're a community under God, united in Jesus Christ in our faith. We see it, you know it, and um, it's kind of this, this special gift rather than circumcision. Praise God. <laughs> Especially for adult converts. So God is lovingly working to unite all people together in Himself through faith in Jesus. And we're called to join Him. And here's where I want to start landing. And I'm just going to give like a bunch of examples of maybe where it finds you. Maybe where it finds you in the story. Because maybe you're like Peter in many ways. Maybe you're not. I'm so glad that the Bible is so honest about where people are at. So that we can see how the Holy Spirit transforms us as we believe Jesus. Because I'm hardly ever at, maybe never at, the point that I would like to be. And you're probably a little bit like me. So... um, Let me go through some of these. Knowing that God is at work, uniting all people through faith in Jesus Christ, and He's called us to participate in this, to go and share the gospel with all sorts of people, to cross all sorts of boundaries, to remember Peter going to Simon the Tanner's house, to go to the margins of society, to go to where the chaos is, to join Jesus in pushing back the darkness and bringing freedom to those who are oppressed, spiritually, physically, legally, However, it's part of our Christian message to help the poor and those in need. Again, spiritually, financially, physically, whatever it is, it's the heart of God poured out on people. But we are not exactly like Jesus, and there's work that needs to get done to us. So, so maybe I can encourage some of you. So perhaps you started out like Peter, and I'm just going to stay close to my notes here, so I, I try and, and, and at least maybe hit a few people this morning with some encouragement. Um, maybe you've had really high standards for both yourself and other people. Maybe you've been called the perfectionist once or twice in your life. Maybe sometimes you've had feelings of superiority or inferiority, depending on who you're viewing. Maybe that's you. If that's you... Like Peter, think about Peter and how he has transformed. The gospel transforms you to embrace people of all kinds, to fellowship and eat with people of all kinds. The the gospel, as the Holy Spirit works upon your life and as you understand what Christ has done for you, the gospel can give you mercy and compassion for people who are failing and falling all around you. People who you'd once look down on. People who you wouldn't want to be friends with because others would look and think less of you. The gospel can change you to have mercy and compassion. To love people that you wouldn't have liked before. Why? How do we know that's true? Because that's precisely what Jesus did. The the Prince of Heaven coming to earth as a man to be amongst those who were so unlike Himself. Us. In our sin. Sinless Savior. Loving. Liking. Enjoying. Laughing with those who were sinners. 
And so as He works upon our hearts and we're made to be like Him, the perfectionists start to melt away. And the gentle mercy, grace, and compassion of God starts to fill us and we start to like and love people that are unlike us. If you're a perfectionist, there's hope for you. Perhaps you feel that God's love and approval needs to be earned through service. You have to do enough. The gospel can help you to transform your heart so that you can still lovingly serve people, not for approval, not for praise, not for acceptance, but simply because they have become your prize. Serving them, loving them has become precious to you. That is your reward. How do we know that God can do that? Think about what Paul said when he's thinking about all of his work. And thinking about, you know, he's, he's, he might, he's like, it's better for me to die at one point, but, you know, I'd, I'd rather go be with God, but it's better for you that I remain. Like, what's my reward in this? And he goes, he says this at one point. He says, aren't you our reward? Aren't you our glory? Aren't you our prize? In other words, what the gospel can do to us is give us a Christ-like heart where we're not serving to prove something to ourselves or others, where we're not serving to get acceptance but where we serve Him because the love of God, the love of Jesus, has reformed our hearts to just enjoy and get delight from serving those around us. Perhaps you uh, love performing or competing with people. It may be hard for you to imagine doing something that doesn't have a goal or reward. I'm one of those. What's the point? The gospel can change you and me. Because the gospel tells us that God's love and acceptance comes to us without a performance. Just because God finds us valuable. Just because God says we are worthy. Just because we are lovely. We haven't done anything. We haven't earned anything. We haven't beat anyone. All of our effort, Peter, with all of his non-pork eating, didn't make him more likely than Cornelius, who may have had a pork party. Nothing about them. But God's love, I find you uh, worthy and valuable, and I'm going to save you. And so God can change our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And those that we once were competed with, God can help us love them, want to do them good, want to partner with. You're not my enemy, you're not my competitor. We're going to work together to see Jesus glorified. Perhaps you've got, you got a narrative of life that you just can't shake. You, you just believe certain things about your life and no one can help you believe anything else. The gospel will challenge the way you think about yourself and your experiences and it brings a new narrative and says, here's God's narrative. You have a narrative of your life and your experiences, but here's God's narrative because God was never out of control in your life and God was doing something over all the other stuff that happened. You may feel rejected alone, left out victim, but God is a loving Father who has never rejected you, never left you alone, and never used you. And He's brought you into relationship through Himself, and He wants to heal you and work in your life. And He wants to give you a new narrative, a new belief. And as the Gospel changes you, you might find that you value your life and your personality, and that helps you to value and accept those around you. Perhaps you're just comfortable in your own space. You're the silent type. I know what I know. I don't need you to know what I know, and I don't need to know what you know. 
I'm good. The gospel challenges that. And it breaks you out of your comfort. And it pushes you towards other people. And it pushes you to open your heart and your life and to share yourself. It takes you out of your Jewish ghetto where you're comfortable and it pushes you to the marginalized and it pushes you into the Gentile home and it pushes you to share the love of Jesus with people that you might not think you would ordinarily get on with. But as you do, something of the love of God gets shaped and formed in your heart and you begin to see what Christ is like and you begin to get formed into a Christ-likeness and suddenly loving other people becomes greater to you than staying comfortable. Maybe you can never say, I really enjoy this, it's super comfortable. But what you can say is, being with other people and loving them means more to me than staying comfortable. That's a change God can bring to you. Perhaps you've struggled with fears and doubts in your faith. Peter did too. Remember when he denied knowing Jesus? Perhaps you've struggled in your faith. Perhaps you've got fears and doubts. Well, the Holy Spirit works the gospel into you. And anxieties and fears are replaced with courage. Look at what happened to Peter. He denied, the, he denied Jesus in front of you know, a girl and some other servants. And then days or, or you know, quite a few days later, he's preaching the gospel to thousands of people. He's going to prison for the sake of the gospel. When he gets crucified, he asks for, uh, to be crucified upside down so that he's not crucified like Jesus because he's not worthy of sharing in that death. See, the gospel has so shaped him that his fears and anxieties have gone away and this faith and courage has replaced it. And he's willing to share Jesus with anyone that God will allow him. Slowly, little by little, he gets there. So maybe today you have doubts and fears and anxieties, but as the the Holy Spirit works the gospel into your heart and works it upon your mind, your fears and anxieties can go away and He can give you courage and strength and faith to live out your faith. So don't feel small. Don't feel weak. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful. I should have shared more at work. I should have been a Christian in my neighborhood. I should have this. I should have done. None of that is helpful. None of that is God. Rather just go, God, I, I, in me is a coward who uh, doubts and fears and is anxious, and I know that you can work in that. Can you do what only you can do? And then be surprised by what he does. Almost done. Just trying to pick up a few more people. Maybe you thought the Christian life is boring, so you've looked for all sorts of distractions and fun and adventure. But the gospel will help you see that your only joy and satisfaction can be found in Jesus. It will help you not only get that with your head, but it will help you to get that with your heart. Not to only know that your joy and satisfaction can be found in Jesus, but to actually find your joy and satisfaction in Jesus. Those are two very different things. It's one thing to be on a journey going, I'm going to pursue these things for fun and adventure, and maybe, you know, God, I know I'm supposed to find my joy and satisfaction in you, but I don't, and blah, blah, blah. It's another thing to go, I've searched the world but I've found nothing more lovely and beautiful than Jesus Christ. And He is where I long to run. After a great adventure, I long for something even better, which is the presence of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't make you help love life less. You know, that, that wonderful hymn, which I think is true, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His glorious face, and the things of this world will grow 
strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I think that's true, that things have less of a, a tangle hold on us as we get to know Jesus more and more. But it doesn't mean we love lifeless. It doesn't mean we think the world is less beautiful. It doesn't mean we laugh less. It doesn't mean we have less adventures. It doesn't mean we don't go to the ocean and be more astounded and find it more wonderful. As we uh, are with Jesus, we see all those things as they ought to be, rather than having a hold on us, we see the beauty for what it is. And so the gospel can change you, so that instead of uh, using your energy to try and uh, satisfy yourself, you can use your creativity and energy to bring joy to others. Maybe you've tried to control your life by trying to control others or to control situations. And the gospel shows you that real strength is in weakness. That we become, when we become weak and vulnerable and we admit our failings and we lose control, that Jesus can really reign in our lives. That he, it's actually an obstacle when we have it all together. It's an obstacle when we've got no questions. It's an obstacle when we've got control and we've got power and everyone's doing as we've told them to do. And man, it's hard when we can't control our lives or our situations. But that's when we can find that Jesus is in control, that God is sovereign, and that we are safe in Him. And God can make us gracious to other people. Not brash, not harsh. As we allow ourselves to be weak and held in His hand, patience and kindness and grace overflows to others. Perhaps you have no courage that you bring much, that anyone wants to hear you. Perhaps you don't think you've got anything to add. But the gospel helps you embrace that God has given you a voice. God has given you gifts. That God has given you insights. That God has given you wisdom. That God can use you to bring reconciliation to His people. God can use you to bring people together. God can use you to encourage people. That God can use you to help And the Holy Spirit works upon your heart and and helps you find your voice. Not for your glory, but for His. There are many ways that the Gospel changes us. And God invites us to join loving the people around us. There's not one size fits all. God empowers salvation. God is the one saving. We're not giving you a method. I haven't given you a method this morning of how to go and get people saved. What I guess I'm trying to show you is as the gospel is worked upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we, like Peter, little by little, get pushed to the margins of society, get pushed to those who are in need, which is everyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what their bank statement says, regardless of their education, regardless regardless of their ethnicity. We won't get sent to everyone, but we'll get sent to someone. And we get pushed there, and we find that through the Holy Spirit, there's something in our lives, some way, some words, some thing, some many things that we are able to use to glorify God and communicate the gospel and proclaim to them the good news of Jesus. God is lovingly at work to unite all people in Him through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is breaking down every human division, and you and I are invited to join in. And if we keep in step with the Holy Spirit... A journey of great unity in all of its diversity in Jesus Christ awaits us all.
Who are the people that God will call you to lovingly serve tomorrow? It can't be everyone, but it's someone. And are there any barriers in your heart this morning? Are there any people that you just would rather not spend eternity with? And you certainly would rather not go share the gospel with? Let the Holy Spirit show you. Anyone that you think is superior, any group of people you think are inferior, let the Holy Spirit reveal that to you. Confess it this morning. We can't come to communion with prejudices in our hearts. We can't come to the cross where Jesus unites all people and forgives all people and say, that's okay, I get why you did that for me, but I, I don't really know why you would want to do it for them. It's a place where we are all humble like Peter to say, all people are equal in the eyes of God. All of us. And I'm so grateful that you would see me, that you would save me, that you'd make me your child. But I have some things in my heart. Will you please help those walls come down? Will you help the Berlin Walls, the Jewish ghettos, the Mark prejudices come down so I can see people as you see them? And I can share the gospel as you would share it. Now, you don't have to announce it to us. We're not going to make you write it down on a piece of paper and turn it in. I'm not even going to ask you to share it with someone next to you if you don't want. But what I am inviting you to do is to lay it at the feet of Jesus and let the Holy Spirit powerfully bring down the prejudices that might get in the way of the gospel being shared with others and to help you love people that you wouldn't imagine ever being able to like because that's what God does. Let me pray.